This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. I know we have talked to some patients who have told us about their experiences with weight loss. Well, I thought it might be interesting to bring in the perspective of a doctor. I wanted to highlight how unique each one of us is when it comes to weight loss and how different weight loss looks and feels for different people. I would like to welcome Dr. Beverly Chank, who is an endocrinologist and an obesity specialist. She works as an assistant professor at the Comprehensive Weight Control Center at Weill Cornell Hospital. But before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you all again to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Welcome, Beverly, and thank you so much for coming in. You know, I wanted to bring in a perspective of a physician as we see patients in our clinics as to how we deal with individual patients and individual things and how it's not a cookie-cutter approach for every patient, right? So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Avishkar, for inviting me on. I love talking about obesity and what I do. It's really my passion as well as yours, I can tell. Yeah, likewise. I love talking about obesity. I can talk about it all day. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things that I really want to open the curtains on to people because there's so much of misinformation out there. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I got you on my podcast, just to show that how different it is for different people when they come to us for advice with regards to weight loss, right? it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating when you meet each person and you're trying to figure out what type of obesity, per se, do they have? Or like what's driving their challenges with food or physical activity or health or hormones or any of that. So right. it's always a fun journey. No, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting that I've been on a few podcasts and they ask me, well, what causes obesity? And I just tell them it's not as simple as X, Y, and Z. There are a lot of complexities right. that go into it. And really, as an obesity specialist, we try to delve into those complexities and see what will actually work for the patient, right? Mm-hmm. And that is so important because A lot of times, a lot of things get missed, but we really need to take a deep dive and understand what really is going on in the patient's life and the patient's physiology. Sometimes they may be having great lives, they may be having a very sound personal life or professional life, but it just may be their physiology that's not working in their favor, right? And then we need to tackle that in that sense, right? I think you said it exactly right, that obesity is not an issue of lifestyle. It's not a choice. And so the patients who come to see me, they know this intrinsically, that obesity is a medical disease, that there's truly something biological going on that makes it difficult for them to lose weight. And so they're already ahead of the game for the most part when I talk to them. Right. So let's dive into these stories, you know, and we kind of pick some stories to highlight the different aspects of uh, weight loss and of the therapeutics that we use. And I believe that even lifestyle changes form a part of therapeutics. 
mm-hmm. with regards to obesity. So I think let's just start with a patient that lost weight with that's purely with lifestyle changes, which we know works for a lot of people, but may not actually work for some people. Yeah, yeah. Lifestyle is so important. It still remains the foundation of our obesity management. So it is something that we try to focus on and make sure it's optimized before we go to any further steps. Right. So I'll share a story about one of my patients. Pretty typical, I would say. 35-year-old man, BMI of 33, so he does have obesity. His weight was, I believe, 250-ish when I met him, and he's tall. He's six feet tall. I see. But he's been struggling with weight for maybe most of his adult life. Very classically one of those who was very active during high school, active during college, but then slowly tapered off as he got married and started having kids. And the weight slowly crept up from there. Interestingly, he did mention that immediately post-college, he was in the Peace Corps in Africa and had lost weight down to 185 pounds, which was his lowest weight. I see. And so you get a sense already that he, in his lifetime, has experienced the 70-pound weight range, which I think a lot of people can understand as well. But so he saw me first back in March, right before the pandemic, actually. <laughs> first met him back in March. And he had said that, you know, he's been doing as much as he can. He's doing like high intensity workout classes. He's trying to, quote unquote, eat right, of course. And he himself started intermittent fasting. I as see. I'm sure you know, intermittent fasting has become very popular. Yes, it has. <laughs> I have tried it myself. You've tried it yourself? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of types, right? But for him, and I think for many people, he was doing the 816, I think they call it, where you're fasting for 16 hours and whatever you plan to eat, you're putting that in a window of eight hours per day. He was doing that and he wasn't losing weight. So he was really struggling there. And that's kind of why and how he ended up with me. When I talked to him more specifically about the diet, because of course we want to first, you know, talk about nutrition and then physical activity and talk about the weight and how all of that is interacting. He, it didn't sound terrible, right? He would have maybe coffee in the morning, a piece of fruit. Lunch could be a sandwich that he brings from home that he makes at home. Dinner, you know, it varies all the time, but it was just a protein, veggie and starch typically. He did say that he had some cookies once in a while, you know, an occasional sweet dessert mid-afternoon or after dinner, but nothing else. So no juice or soda, no sugar-sweetened beverages, which we like to counsel against. He wasn't drinking a lot of alcohol, even though it was the start of the pandemic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so it was pretty standard healthy diet, I would say. Right. But it wasn't working for him. He wasn't losing. And so that's how we started talking about why this healthy diet is not working for him. So when we've dived into his biology, like his hormones, his family history, his experience previously with other types of diets, Mm -hmm. what kind of clued me into what type of diet might work best for him was one, fasting insulin level. And I don't want to get too technical for sure. people, but weight regulation by the body is absolutely controlled by hormones. Absolutely. It's not always your thyroid hormone, 
And yeah. sometimes it's not always estrogen or testosterone, but it's absolutely controlled by hormones, the majority of which we can't actually check in the blood, unfortunately, because yeah. they operate in the brain or the gut. But for him, we did find that his insulin level was just sitting high for I no see. reason, fasting. And he also had told me that his father had diabetes. In the oh, past. I see. So... What I eventually recommended to him was a lower carbohydrate diet. Right. We don't talk about low carb per se. We're not necessarily talking Atkins or keto or anything too drastic. We don't give specific calorie counts or macronutrient targets. Sure. We talk about just adjusting his diet and seeing if we can cut down carbohydrates from maybe one meal a day. Right. So for breakfast, maybe instead of a piece of fruit, he'll have like a hard-boiled egg or maybe even like a protein bar if he's really on the run. Maybe for lunch or dinner, he'll skip the carbohydrate side dish or whatever it is Got he it. has with that. And, you know, some of the things that he initially reported to me on the first visit, like needing large portion sizes, for example, to feel full, that resolved, actually, after we switched him to a lower carbohydrate diet. Yeah, and I think that uh, happens if you, especially if you switch that with protein, because we know protein as a macronutrient does cause more Correct. satiety than carbohydrates mm -hmm. do. So, exactly. Yeah. And same with fat. Both fat and protein actually improve our feelings of satiation and satiety. So I didn't actually give him too much direction on to what to replace the carbohydrate with. Many sure. people will just cut it out and they end up doing a lower calorie diet anyway. Many people will cut it out and they might replace it with protein, but they're eating less overall exactly because of that satiety factor. And so the next time I saw him, which was really only two months later, he had already lost 10 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was impressed. <laughs> I was very impressed. And I will put an asterisk to that, that that is a, like a super response in our right. world. You know, that's really, really fantastic. And a little bit means that, yes, we hit it right in terms right. of the type exactly. of diet composition we want that would match best for his biology. Many people might lose even half a pound per week, so maybe only two pounds a month. Some people might only lose a pound per week, one pound per month, or four pounds per month, excuse me. And those are still considered successes for right. us. But for him, he was fantastic <laughs> he really and a lot of times it. we do see that the weight loss would be very rapid initially and then it kind of slows down but for some people it may not be that way at all and they may not lose any weight it's true right? it's very yeah. variable for people that is the most important thing that people need to recognize and i think why it's so hard to get through all of the information out there because when you read something you think it might apply to you but it worked maybe for one person, for this influencer or that person or this celebrity, but everyone is so different that you have to, the best way to see if it works is just to try it. Yeah, absolutely. When he came back, he told me his diet didn't change a huge amount, to be honest. For breakfast, he was actually just doing coffee, not really having the fruit anymore. Lunch was, he was doing a frozen 
fruit smoothie, which I have other issues with, but I couldn't <laughs> complain. <laughs> I mean, he was losing weight. Yeah. I mean, he was losing weight, and I can't complain about fruit, to be honest. But we can talk about that another. Point, well, I have my issues with smoothies want. and juices, so <laughs> I'm on the same, same. page. Yeah? yeah, yeah. Let me just say that I would prefer people eat their calories rather than drink them. Drink That's them. my general idea. But he made a lot of great changes and dinner was still like a protein, vegetable and starch, but he wasn't really craving sweets anymore. Actually, his portion sizes were smaller. He was feeling more satisfied. And this was, by the way, not changing his physical activity regimen at all. Right. He was still kind of doing some sort of body weight exercises, maybe two times a week, maybe walking a bit. You know, we were heading into the pandemic, so there was even less yeah. physical activity, I would presume, at that point. But just by targeting the right composition of his diet, we got him in a very good place. No, that's so cool, yeah. Because that's what I try to tell people. Well, even though lifestyle forms the bedrock of any management, any obesity management, it may not be the entire picture because there are so many other variables that go into it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to highlight in the next story, right? We're going to be talking about a patient who had some psychiatric illness and how that played into his weight loss journey or her weight loss journey. Yeah, she was so interesting. So she also had obesity. I think her BMI was 35-ish. Didn't have a lot of comorbidities from like the medical side of things, but she did have depression, anxiety, kind of the typical things that plague us all, honestly. <laughs> but she also had binge eating disorder, and she came to me with this diagnosis. We do always ask our patients, and I think patients should also think about it themselves if they have any binge eating tendencies. We're not out to diagnose anyone with binge eating per se, binge eating disorder per se, but if you find yourself feeling out of control when you're eating something or you do find yourself finishing a large amount of food in a short period of time, those tend to be binge eating behaviors. And it very much tells me that there's something awry with your brain's signaling, receiving that signal for fullness and receiving the signal for satisfaction. Right, you know, actually, Beverly, I did an episode on binge eating disorder. You so, did. listeners, if yeah, Great. if you listeners, if you want to listen to that episode, you can head on over to www.decodingobesity.com forward slash ep10 because the episode was episode number ten, and that was all about binge eating disorder. Where I discussed this at length with my listeners and actually with a psychiatrist. So, I think this is one of those disorders that's so under recognized, right? Even for us, even for patients, because the way patients feel is that they're not able to control themselves, and it's kind of somewhat their fault. But it's really a recognized disorder that needs to be treated before we can actually dive into treating other stuff. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And there's so many overlapping components to a patient with psychiatric disorders. The psychiatric disorder itself, the binge eating disorder, could be contributing to the weight, of course. Yeah. But then the medications that they might be on treating these issues, treating the anxiety or treating the depression, can also cause weight gain. Absolutely. And so she was actually on venlafaxine, which mm -hmm. is a serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's not the most commonly known medication to cause weight gain, but it can. Okay. Right. You do see it sometimes. And so 
what we do as your physicians is we very much like to work with your psychiatrist to see is this the best medication for you we're definitely not there to you know change the regimen so of that course. your mood is thrown off but you know we're both on your team to ensure that your health is the number one priority both mental and physical so i reached out to her psychiatrist and the psychiatrist did say that you know she's been on the vemafaxine for a very long time but maybe we can reduce the dose and it was more for anxiety than depression i see maybe we can reduce the dose if we add something else which is my recommendation could we add something else that might be more weight neutral right. or might even cause some weight loss or might even directly affect the binge eating disorder directly target that right and people may know that there are medications used for binge eating disorder one of the on label fda approved medications is a lisdexamphetamine vivans yeah yep mm -hmm. what we had recommended to use for her was actually just topiramate right and which is used off label by psychiatrists yeah. mm -hmm. for binge eating disorder and we know that topiramate works for weight loss as well and topiramate works for weight loss as well on its own separate from binge eating disorder that's correct yeah so we use it off label for weight loss topiramate but it is part a weight an fda approved weight loss medication known as qsimia which is fentramine plus topiramate yeah so when she started onto a pyramid and we just put her on 25 going up to 50 milligrams yeah she came back just two months later telling me that her binging was 90 percent gone yeah and you know that's so important to recognize and realize this that there are so many other complexities into this weight loss and sometimes people who have a binge eating disorder if they do certain things that may actually be detrimental for example if a binge eating disorder goes unrecognized and mm -hmm. pe people end up having a bariatric surgery the outcomes are actually going to be worse for them and sometimes if they go on to intermittent fasting for example they it may actually precipitate their binging episodes yes there's a lot of concerns of how we work best with the psychiatric population so as right. to not trigger anything with the management recommendations we have yeah and so it's so important to recognize it at the outset and that's what i try to highlight to people also that look there's not one size that fits all and there are going to be so many different things so here just by switching the medications around she found such great benefits so what happened actually after that so she lost 11 pounds <laughs> <laughs> She and that was, was just by switching one. the medications, right? There was nothing else that, that happened around there. I didn't even give her much dietary counseling because for her, it was more of the amount, not the composition, right. right? Like the first patient we talked about, it was more of the composition, not necessarily the amount of food, right. maybe a little bit, because I think he did, right, he did say he had larger portion sizes. But for herself, actually, in her brain, she just wanted to be satisfied with less food. Right. And it worked. Yeah, that's that's so impressive. She had said that um, it felt like a switch was being turned off, and she could like hear her own non-food related thoughts. Wow. Prior to that, she was just, you know, while she's eating a meal, she's thinking of the next meal, or wow. like in between talking to people or doing work, she's thinking about like what to snack on while she's going to do a project. So giving her something like this just kind of unclouded her brain, and she felt amazing. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah. 
And then we talk about these weight loss medications. You had mentioned Qsimia, which is also FDA approved Mm -hmm. for weight loss. And I think a lot of times people have these apprehensions about medications and they they don't want to be on a quote-unquote diet pill. Mm. Uh, So let's talk about about a patient who actually... (laughs) (laughs) I don't want people to be on diet pills either, okay? But we do recognize that obesity is a disease, okay? Just like... High blood pressure is a disease, high cholesterol is a disease, cancer is a disease. And to an extent, maybe, yes, lifestyle changes can affect that disease, right? You can exercise more, you can not smoke cigarettes, you can maybe reduce the salt in your diet. But for some people, again, their biology is such that they will still have that disease, even if they're doing all of the right things, so to speak. And it's the same with obesity. So one of my patients, similar to patient number one, she had already come to me on a lower carbohydrate diet, which she came upon herself just by trial and error. She's older. She was, or I'm sorry, now she's 60s. No, 70. She's 70 now. Wow. Sorry, she, she acts like she's 60, but she's 70 <laughs> years now. And, you know, she's been around the diet block, so to speak, right? She was right. there when like Weight Watchers was popular. She was there when all the Jenny Craig and other commercial weight loss programs were popular, when everyone is on this low fat stint that was perpetuated by our USDA food pyramid, right? Yeah. And then she ended up on Atkins, which she found she lost a lot of weight but couldn't sustain. Right. Atkins is, I'm sure many people know, is a very low carbohydrate diet and higher protein, but it can be hard to sustain to keep that very low carb part of it. When I met her, she was sustaining some version of low carb, not as strict as Atkins, but she was like eating cottage cheese for breakfast. She was doing an open sandwich for lunch. Dinner was like salad and a protein. Her snacks were nuts, you know, very healthy, very low carb in general and doing quite well. And she was like middle range of her lifetime weight. So she was maintaining a lower weight even without my help, but she was still in the obesity range, she still had a little bit of prediabetes and she wanted to optimize things even further. So I'll put a caveat to this is we added an off-label medication for her. We added metformin. Okay. Okay. Metformin is a medication that is used to treat diabetes. This is what it is FDA approved for. Right. But there is, it has been around for 50 plus years. Okay. And I'm sure some listeners will recognize it because it ends up in the media a little bit for all of the other possible benefits it can have. The strongest evidence is actually preventing diabetes in people with prediabetes. So just in the same way people might take aspirin to prevent a heart attack, there are people taking metformin off-label just to prevent diabetes. Again, I just want to make sure that I want point out to our listeners that, listeners, please do not start doing any of this on your own. It's um, true. <laughs> that is not what we are trying to recommend. Uh, we always recommend see your physician before you do any of this because these are all therapeutics. They can have potential detrimental effects as well. So 
whenever these medications are started, they're always started under physician supervision. So please see a physician before taking on anything of this sort. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we started metformin for her, and it was a very low dose, she came back five months later down 18 pounds. Wow. And actually, you know, uh, Beverly, it's interesting that you point this out because I think there's some data that has come out about metformin helping with weight loss as well. We always knew that it was weight neutral, but I think there is some data coming out that metformin may help with some weight loss as well. So that's actually from our group at Cornell. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. We just published that. Great setup. Great setup, Avishkar. (laughs) So my mentor, Dr. Alpana Shukla, Oh, yeah. Is head of our research division at the Comprehensive Weight Control Center. And the first author on that paper is Dr. Tariq Chukir, who was a endocrinology fellow at Cornell, but did a lot of obesity research with us and is now a an attending in Qatar. I see. But we went through our data, our clinic data. So real life practice, right? Our clinic data (laughs) to see how much are people losing with metformin. We wanted to compare two groups, actually. We looked at people who had, quote unquote, insulin resistance or some glucose intolerance. So people who have like prediabetes or diabetes as one group. And we looked at another group who didn't have it at all. Okay. Because there are questions of like, well, should metformin only be used in people with prediabetes? And we found that both groups lost an average of about 7%, maintained yeah. an average of 7% weight loss over 12 months. So it doesn't matter whether you have prediabetes or you don't. If we, if you work with metformin, maybe we're doing a lower carbohydrate diet in addition to it. Maybe you're working with us at our clinic. <laughs> you can expect, you can, you can aim for that 7% right. weight loss. And that's great because metformin has been around for a very long time. It's a great drug. And it's available. Yeah. It's available in the sense that it's cheap. It's international, I think. Like yeah, it's Everyone I speak to in terms of international patients, they'll come to me and they'll say some version of metformin in, in a different <laughs> accent. I'll know exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, what happened to that patient then? Let's see. So she continued to lose weight. She maintained the about, about 20 pounds that she had lost over the first five months. Okay. And she Did you start started... her on anything other than the metformin? No. Oh, it was just metformin. It wow. was just metformin. We use metformin a lot as an off-label anti-obesity right. medication. Right. She got down from 185, 185 pounds to 154. And I just saw her maybe a couple of weeks ago. So it's been over a year that she's been maintaining a 30-pound weight loss. Wow. So, uh, you know, this highlights the fact that even even if people are on a healthy a healthy diet, sometimes that may not be enough to get you mm-hmm. to where you need to be. And I don't say where you want to be. I say where you need to be because you have to be in a metabolically healthy state, which may not necessarily be what you may have actually thought of in your mind as the ideal weight that you need to be at, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really important. And it's also, you know, people should also realize that weight in of itself does not define your health. Yeah. It is a component of your health. And yes, addressing the weight tends to address a lot of other potential health issues. But we, as your physicians, also realize that 
you can be very healthy at a higher weight, so to speak. Yeah. That's important to know too. Yeah. So, you know, I think one more story would do justice to this podcast and to our listeners is about the surgery, right? A lot of times people think about surgeries and I think there's mixed opinion about surgery. I know some people are scared of the knife and they do not want the surgery because they think that it's their fault or it's mm. something that they need to fix within themselves and surgery is not the answer. And there's the other group that thinks that, well, if I get the surgery done and that's it's a it's a done and dusted deal and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. I think people are split in the middle when it comes to surgery. Yeah. So let's talk about surgery. And I think we have another story to share, right, about yeah, a patient who yeah. had the surgery. Again, so you, you have to recognize that obesity is a disease and both patients and doctors need to recognize that. Okay? Yeah. Because it's a disease, there are some parts of it that's out of your control, right? There's like nature, nurture, environment, genetic, that type of thing. Yeah. There are parts of it that's out of your control. Medications, lifestyle can address some of those biological issues that's driving the obesity. Some people, and well, rather, luckily, we have another tool that can also be used to address those hormonal imbalances that's causing obesity. And that's exactly where we come to the topic of metabolic surgery right? or bariatric surgery. There are different types out there. People have heard of like the lap band, the yeah. sleeve where they make your stomach into like this tubular sleeve and the bypass, the gastric bypass, which yeah. I think people are a little bit wary of because it's a little more complicated to understand in terms of the what happens physically to yeah. you. But the sleeve and the gastric bypass are excellent surgeries that change, reset your sort of body weight set point, okay, and rebalance those hormonal issues that were causing the obesity in the first place. Now, I'll be honest, if you don't know exactly how it works, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of data out there. And the truth is that there's no just one singular mechanism. Right. Yes, you do tend to eat less after the surgery, and that contributes a lot to the weight loss. But there are other hormonal changes where you have a reduction in your hunger hormone, for example, yeah. like ghrelin. Like ghrelin goes, goes down, down. drastically. Yeah. Your satiation hormones, GLP-1, is one of the hormones that your gut produces to help you feel full. That goes up after yeah. these metabolic surgeries. So we recognize that there's more to just, again, the number, the amount that you're eating. Yeah. And that's why these surgeries work. So one of my patients, she's 54 now, and she had surgery about 10, yeah, 10 years ago. So she had surgery at age 54. And the reason she decided to do surgery was because she did have significant obesity that was already causing her diabetes, high blood pressure, and sleep apnea. Right. And so she did her homework, really, because we know now, too, that bariatric surgery is, I'd like to say, cure for diabetes. Okay? <laughs> I think people are afraid to say that. But, you know, there's remission and there's cure. But there right. was actually a recent study that came out um, that looked at the durability of surgery over 10 years for keeping diabetes in remission, quote-unquote. Yeah. And it was still better 10 years later than just medical therapy. 
So imagine if you're someone with diabetes and you have weight issues and let's say you're on like three different medications for your diabetes, maybe you're also on insulin. You do this surgery and literally the day after surgery, you are off all of those medications. Okay. That's many yeah. of my patients, many of yeah. my patients. Yeah. We know that there's data to support this. Uh, and yes. that's because of the, all the hormonal changes that take place after the surgery. Exactly. And then, you, then you're not taking three or four medications for the next 10 plus years. Okay. So she came to me 10 years later after her gastric bypass, diabetes still in remission, still in remission, but her weight was creeping up. I see. Okay. So she was, I think she started out at 330 pounds. She lost down about 100 pounds, which is very typical of uh, bariatric surgery, losing about maybe 30% of your weight. So she lost down to the 200s. No, actually, she lost down further than that. I think she lost down to a little bit less than 200 and then came a little bit back up and stabilized around the low 200s for most of those 10 years. But when she saw me, she was at 280. So she was kind of creeping back up to her higher weights. Right. Still diabetes, still in remission, right? So again, it's not just so despite the, the weight the calories. Gain, the, the, yeah, despite the weight gain, the diabetes was still in remission. Because again, it's the hormonal, hormonal change changes that, that, that occur. gastric bypass initiated yeah. for her. And so she was not eating a lot because of the gastric bypass. Some yogurt and nuts fish, healthy-ish things, but there was the occasional, you know, French fries, cookies, yeah. ice cream, just less of it than she would have normally done. The management of someone with post-surgical weight regain is not too different from someone who never had surgery because we still look to medications to help yeah. address whatever the issue is that's still driving their weight gain. Yeah. And for her, it could have been that she was feeling a little bit hungrier. We did see that for her just in terms of grazing. Yeah. A lot of these patients end up in this food eating pattern because your stomach is so small that you're eating a small portion, you get full quickly, but then you get hungry quickly thereafter. Yeah. So you end up eating like these smaller meals and she found herself kind of almost grazing all day and not really getting much of a satiation factor yeah. anymore. Um, some of these patients, there was a study that demonstrated that their metabolic rate had dropped after surgery. And even with the weight regain, that metabolic rates didn't really come up as much as it should have so and that we know about right so that's the problem with yo-yo dieting because exactly. you lose the weight you gain it back the metabolic rate does not come back up all the way uh, where it should where it, would have, where it was originally exactly. and that's the problem with this yes yes so if we think that your metabolism has dropped and your quote-unquote you quote-unquote have a slow metabolism then there are potential medications or or interventions that we can use to try to increase that in her case, what we did for her was add in a GLP-1, we say. So this is medications like liraglutide, which is under the brand name Sexenda, is yeah. FDA approved for weight loss. There are others in that category that sometimes we use off-label yeah. for weight loss, 
-hmm. But in her case, we ended up, ended up using liraglutide, which is just a once a day injection. And we actually asked her to eat a little bit more in terms of protein. Yeah. <laughs> less carbohydrates, less of the cookies and the ice cream, a little bit more protein, focusing on meat, maybe using protein shakes if she needs, or plant proteins as well would count to that. But we helped her cut down on the grazing so that instead of eating sort of six to eight small meals throughout the day, she was feeling more satisfied with just three or four. Got it. And with that, she started slowly coming down. So I saw her, I first met her back in, when was it? Mid-June middle of the pandemic. <laughs> Everything's sort of pre and post pandemic for me in my head. <laughs> um, so six months later, she was down 12 pounds. Wow. Okay. And I think astute listeners will be like, well, that's only two pounds per month. Is that yeah. really a lot? It is. It absolutely is. Especially for someone who ha whose higher weight was like the 330s. And she's already at a weight reduced level and she's trying to lose even more weight. You're fighting a lot of biological mechanisms in your body and in your brain that that's trying to push you back to your higher weight. It's yeah. a survival mechanism yeah, exactly. in essence. So we were very happy that she was able, that we were able to get her there. Yeah, that's so cool. And a lot of times people don't understand that once you have a bariatric surgery, your life completely changes because immediately post-surgery, your routine of eating will completely change. You need many more frequent small meals instead of your three square meals that you're used to with occasional snacks in between. Mm -hmm. So it's like six meals a day, which are going to be very, very small meals. And you're just constantly pretty much eating. So it's very tricky to kind of manage your diet post-surgery and it requires a lot of attention post-surgery. So yeah, that definitely needs to be taken into consideration. And the fact that when you're already doing everything that you can do and then you start gaining weight, of course, that can be very distressing also for people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't want people to get scared of it and think, oh, this sounds too complicated. It requires like a whole lifestyle change. We work with you. The bariatric surgeons work with you actually for six months, even before the surgery, yeah. to make sure you understand and you're comfortable with the dietary changes that's going to happen with eating maybe these small meals a day, eating more protein and all of this. There, there are small things in there, behavioral changes that they recommend and that you start practicing even before the surgery to make sure that you feel comfortable with that. And I haven't, I mean, I, may, I must be biased, but I haven't met anyone who's regretted going for a surgery. Yeah. What I mean is that there's a lot more that goes into a bariatric surgery than just you know, being under the knife. It, there's a, it's a comprehensive program that when you go for a bariatric surgery, you really need to see a lot of other physicians. You need to, firstly, you need to be approved for bariatric surgery. Then you have to see so many more people, understand what goes into it, understand how the life is going to change before you actually even take the step of getting the bariatric surgery done. And even after the bariatric surgery is done, you really need constant follow-up with the physician. So we're all there every step of the way to help the people who've undergone bariatric surgery. But yeah, sometimes it can be distressing even if you've done everything and you, you start gaining the weight. But something to keep in mind that even if that happens, there are things that we can do in terms of medications that we can use, certain lifestyle changes that we can do to help you with that weight regain as well. Exactly. That's exactly it. That there's just so many 
options out there, whether it's a type of diet, type of exercise, the type of medication, or even the type of surgery, you can't possibly be able to navigate all of that on your own. And you shouldn't have to. Right. Okay. So this is why meeting with an obesity medicine specialist or even your primary care doctor who might be able to refer you to an obesity medicine specialist is always a good first step if you're really wondering, is there more that I can do? Or is yeah, there no, more that we can do for you? Absolutely. I think that's very critical that people who have this disease of obesity don't feel that it's their own fault. I think it's time for them to move to having that discussion with their physicians about what can they do about it and how their physicians can help them move in the right direction. And this episode really highlights that. I think my listeners are going to appreciate all of the stories that you've shared because it gives you such a wide spectrum of different choices that we have and a wide spectrum of diseases that we see that can cause obesity, a wide spectrum of potential causes of obesity, and basically how different each individual is and how different each individual's story is going to be and journey is going to be. Yes. I couldn't have said it better. That's, <laughs> that's everything. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Beverly, for joining me. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. And thank you again, Beverly, for joining me. And listeners, please don't forget to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.